0: So our scripture reading today is from Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 20. This is found on page 976 of that pew Bible there in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take this one home as a gift for you um, or a gift for someone you know. So let's read God's word together. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Thanks, Dakota. Welcome to the Brookside Campus of Christ community. It's good to be with you this morning, and my only hope this morning is that I don't make you not come to church for Monday after those rave reviews from Dakota, so try not to screw this up. Hey, if you already have your Bible open to Ephesians 2, please keep that open. If you don't uh, meet me there, we're going to jump right in because I know you all got tailgates to get to this morning, uh, so we're going to get right into it. Uh, We're continuing on this morning in our series that we've been calling Reconstructing Faith, where we're talking about what it looks like to either keep building on or rebuild our faith. What does it look like to build or rebuild our faith? And and, and so far, we have seen that any faith that is to be rebuilt or that we're going to keep building on has to begin and end in Christ. Reconstructing faith begins and ends in Christ. That was the foundation that Paul the Apostle started with in the letter to the Ephesians. We've also seen that it's important for every single one of us, wherever we are on our faith journey, to adopt a posture of humility and curiosity and confidence in God instead of arrogance or self-righteousness or self-sufficiency that can so dominate our dialogues and our, our views of our faith? How do we embody humility, curiosity, and confidence in God? And last week, the Apostle Paul celebrated, and we celebrated together, the work that God is doing to reconstruct each one of us. We said that because of the ways we each individually contribute to the brokenness Of our world, we ourselves need to be remodeled. And the magnificent news that Paul celebrates in the first half of Ephesians 2 is that God's grace has the power to renovate us to the point that we can be called in in a remarkable way, we can be called God's workmanship, his masterpiece. That's where we've been so far. And in our text this morning, as we continue walking through the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is going to continue his train of thought from last week and broaden it a little bit more to say something along these lines. God isn't just rebuilding you, he's rebuilding us. God isn't just rebuilding you, he's rebuilding us. In other words, God is doing more than reconstructing individuals. He's reconstructing entire faith communities. That's the work he's doing. And this morning, Paul is going to cast a vision for what a new people who are brought together in Jesus looks like. And it's a vision, frankly, that is remarkable as it is challenging. That's as surprising as it is compelling. And it's a vision that's as beautiful as it is messy. It's a remarkable, surprising, beautiful, compelling, but challenging and messy vision that we're going to dive into this morning. So let's look together at Ephesians 2. Would you join me reading starting in verse 11? It's on the screen. I'm actually reading from the NIV, um, so you can follow along on the screen if you want to. Here's what it says. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. Now in order for us to grasp the the magnitude of what Paul is proclaiming here, we have to get clear on the the first century Jew-Gentile relationship and what that looked like. And let's just put it this way, Uh, it wouldn't make a good Hallmark movie. It wouldn't. Uh, they were, there was strong, strong animosity between these two groups of people. Because the Gentiles hated the Jewish people. Because of their sense of moral superiority or of ethnic separation, they hated the Jewish people. Meanwhile, the Jewish people looked down on Gentiles as being inferior to them and unclean. Often they would contemptuously refer to them as the uncircumcised, which Paul picks up on here, which is really just a, de- a derogatory nickname that they're uncircumcised. was like, really? Like, that's all you got, Burn? Uh It actually meant a lot to them back then. If we said that to someone else, that would just be weird today. <laughs> but these views of, of superiority were not only just individual people's beliefs, but they were actually institutionalized in the temple, which had a physical barrier that separated the court of the Gentiles from this Jewish section. And all that did was amplify animosity between the two groups. Like there was literally an inscription that threatened death to any Gentile who entered the Jewish section of the temple. It's like their place of worship. Now zoom out from Jerusalem and the temple and Ephesus itself, the city that the church was in that Paul wrote to in Ephesians, Ephesus itself was a city that had significant division around race and culture and class. So imagine for a second that two groups of people who had significant deep-seated prejudice against each other all of a sudden find themselves sitting next to each other in a worship service. That's the situation Paul's speaking into. And the case he's making is actually pretty clear. He says, through the cross, Jesus has brought peace between us and God and reconciled each and every person who is in Christ Jesus to God. Through the cross, he's brought peace between us and God. He first speaks to the Gentiles and he tells them, hey, remember. Remember what your situation was like before you knew Jesus, before God welcomed you in. He says several things. He says they were without Christ. He says they were outsiders. He says they were foreigners, excluded from Israel, hopeless, godless people. That's how he describes them before Jesus. And he says remember that. That verb, word remember is actually the only imperative verb that is used in the entire first three chapters of Ephesians. That's the only thing that people are told to do is remember their situation before Jesus, and celebrate what he has done in them. Which is an amazing thing, because Paul says those amazing words, but now, because of Jesus, they aren't outsiders. They're included with Israel. They have hope now. They have God now. They have been brought near to him and reconciled in relationship with him. And what we have to remember this morning first in our space here, is that this actually describes us. We are the Gentiles in this scenario. We were the strangers who now are called brothers. We were the excluded who are now included. We were the the hopeless who now have hope. We were the ones who were estranged but now have been brought near and have peace. And Paul wants us to celebrate that. He also makes it clear that this same reality is true for the Jewish people. He says they also needed Jesus, not the law, not circumcision, not dietary regulations, not any other marker, but just Jesus to bring them near to God. And he has, and he wants them to remember and celebrate that as well. God brought both the Jews and the Gentiles near to himself and gave them redemption through Jesus. Everything, in other words, that his grace made happen in verses 1 through 10 that we looked at last week is true of both groups of people. But God is doing more than that. He's also bringing peace, Paul says, between the Jews and the Gentiles. Which gets us to the first of, of three metaphors that Paul uses to help describe this new kind of faith community that God is building. Here's the first that we see here. God is making one new family bound together by the blood of Jesus. God is making one new family bound together by the blood of Jesus. We could say it this way, Jesus is not only reconciling each group to God, but he's making one new family by reconciling each group to each other. And it isn't a family where the Gentiles have to assimilate to the Jewish culture and become Jewish to get in, and it's not a family where the Jewish people have to give up their Jewishness to be in. More on that idea later. But the idea here is this. God is making one utterly new family. One utterly new family. Both groups now share in one spirit, they have access to one father, and they are one new family, brothers and sisters, who are bound together by the blood of Jesus. They say that blood is thicker than water, and Paul here is saying that Christ's blood runs the thickest, uniting even the most unlikely people in peace with each other. Now, in order to make peace in a situation like this, Jesus actually had to do some deconstructing himself right? He had to deconstruct what Paul calls the dividing walls of hostility. I mean, think back to the literal dividing walls we talked about earlier that existed in the temple. And Paul is saying somehow the cross tears down these dividing walls and tears down the animosity that separated the two ethnic groups so that what they share in common is stronger than any prejudice that could divide them. Through the cross, Jesus makes foreigners family. He deconstructed the dividing wall so that he could reconstruct something better in their place. Now I want you to consider for a minute what practical things had to happen in order for this reconstruction of a new community to take place. Because this sounds great, right? Like, this is awesome. But on the ground, seeing this vision become a reality is Hard and messy work. Think what happens when a new family is formed. When when Ashton, my wife, and I got married six years ago, we went from being two people to one flesh, and we were overjoyed. Like, what an amazing thing to happen. But then we started living together. (laughs) And we recognized and realized all the ingrained habits that we had from the cultures of our family that were at odds with each other. So we had to figure out how we were going to live together and make it work and actually have peace with each other. So we had to work out things like whether you should dry off in the shower or on the drying mat. I maintain that the drying mat is called the drying mat for a reason, get into that later. We'll have a podcast on that I think some point. (laughs) We had to work through things like that. I had to set aside some of my preferences like having the sheets cover my body fully at night And she had to set aside some of her preferences like having things picked up all the time, because I'm a mess. Now these are pretty trivial examples, but there were also harder things we had to surrender in order to live together and have peace with each other too. And as you add kids to a family, each kid comes with a new personality, right? And you keep building and rebuilding your family in light of those differences. You might have to give up something you liked about your family of three, in order to make it a family of four, and so on. Now here's where I'm going with this. There is an inherent cost to making the kind of community that Paul is envisioning here. There's an inherent cost. The Jewish people had to lay down some of their worship and lifestyle preferences in order to make room for the Gentiles and their family. And the Gentiles had to do the same. There's a cost of giving up what it takes so that everyone can be at the dinner table together. Because God is making one new family, bound together by the blood of Jesus. Here's the second thread that we see in this passage. God is making one new body brought together under the head of Jesus. He's making one new body brought together under the head of Jesus. Let's pick up reading again in verse 16. Paul says this, He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body, through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. And he came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. When Paul mentions the idea of Jews and Gentiles becoming one body together, he's actually drawing on something he already explored in Ephesians 1 when he said this, And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. He'll pick this up again next week in in chapter 3, but in another letter he wrote, Paul will also put it this way. Yeah, there we go. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. So what does Paul have in mind here when he uses this image to describe how people across ethnic and socioeconomic divides are being brought together? We can say it like this. If the image of family emphasizes unity, the image of a body reminds us that this kind of unity does not obliterate ethnic distinctions. In other words, it's unity without uniformity. Because Paul says, even though the body is is one together, the different parts of the body look different. I don't walk around with a nose that looks like a foot. It just looks different. No part is better than the other, but every part serves different roles. And he's saying, we all have the same spirit, but the spirit gifts us in different ways. And part of the uniqueness that we bring to the table is our cultural background. Again, God didn't say that the Gentiles needed to assimilate to Jewish culture or that the Jews needed to assimilate to Gentile culture. In this new community he's reconstructing, it is possible to be reconciled and unified while maintaining our beautiful differences. Amen. We often say that uh, America is like a a melting pot, and it can be tempting to use that same analogy for a text like this to describe the church. But it's probably more helpful to think of the church as a stew pot than a melting pot. Because in a melting pot, all the ingredients are blended together and they become kind of like one substance. They're all melted together. But in a stew, each individual ingredient maintains its structure and unique flavor. So you preserve the individual contribution of each ingredient and that's what enhances a stew, right? That's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. We see this on display also in this passage in the way that Paul seamlessly weaves together the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the triune God working in this project together. They're, both, they're all three one, but they're distinct. And the church is called to imitate this reality. For him to say that Christ is our head in light of that means that he is our ultimate authority. He is our ultimate source and the ultimate place where our loyalty and allegiances lie, which means where allegiances to other things would have tempted the Christians in Ephesus to compromise this vision of a beautiful, messy, multi-ethnic community. Paul reminds them who their ultimate allegiance and authority truly is. God is making one new body brought together under the head of Jesus. Here's the final thread in this passage. God is making one new temple built together on the cornerstone of Jesus. God is making one new temple built together on the cornerstone of Jesus. Let's finish chapter 2 and see what he's saying here. Join me in verse 19. It says, so then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Now, friends, this is the climax that Paul has been working toward. See, the temple that we talked about earlier, that was the heart of the nation of Israel. That was the place where where God's presence was was believed to dwell uniquely through His Spirit, a place where where heaven and earth came together. And it was a symbol, the temple, of, of pride and distinction for the people of Israel. So it can't be overstated how radical and sensational Paul's words are here can't be overstated. God is building one new temple, but not a temple that's made of stones, not a temple that's made of walls, or any other kind of physical structure, but made of human beings, diverse human beings, who all share in common the fact that their lives are being built on the cornerstone and foundation of Jesus Christ. So the idea is this, just like he was uniquely present in the Jerusalem temple, God's personal presence, his spirit, uniquely resides in the gathered, diverse, multi-ethnic community of faith, the new temple. And Gentiles, who would have been killed if they passed the threshold of the first temple, are welcome to be a part of God's household and share in his presence. It's remarkable. We can't miss the importance of this church. When the church is brought together across barriers and divides, they don't merely become members of the same social group. They are built into the very community that God's Spirit delights to live in. God isn't just rebuilding you. He's rebuilding us. And he's making us into one new family bound together by the blood of Jesus. One new body brought together under the head of Jesus. And one new temple built together on the cornerstone of Jesus. It's a breathtaking vision, isn't it? And the question that both the church in Ephesus and our church in Brookside might feel like asking is this. Is something like this even possible? Is something like that even possible? possible? Is it possible in a city like Ephesus divided by race and class or a city like Kansas City divided along the same lines for Jesus' church to embody this kind of community? Is it possible? In one sense, we can say yes because we've seen the last 2,000 years of human history We've seen it happen around the world. I'm reminded of a story that our friend Gitachu from Kenya shared when he was here a couple weeks ago of people from tribes who would literally kill each other if they ran into each other in the desert, coming together to worship and sing together. And Gitachu said that the church is the only place in Kenya that something like that would happen. Friends, that's Jesus tearing down dividing walls, amen? There's story after story in America, around the world, of churches who have seen this vision become a reality. But in another sense, you might be feeling this this morning as we talk about this passage, we still find this kind of reconciliation lacking along racial and ethnic lines in our country. We have felt deeply, as a nation, the tensions of racial and ethnic divisions the injustice that's been wrought by broken people and broken structures. And tragically, we see it and have seen it in the very church that is designed by God to be a diverse and unified witness to the world around us. In fact, many people who are deconstructing their faith right now are doing so because they see a church that not only fails at times to embody this vision, but has been complicit in propagating racial disunity and publicly mistreating people of color. They see a church that has acted like that. I mean, friends, let's not forget the birth of the black church in America is the result of whites rejecting black members from their churches. That's where it started. And as far as we've come, and we have come a long way since that point in time, as far as we've come, we have to continue actively participate in what God is building, or else we will fall back into patterns of division and disunity and hatred, just like the Ephesians were tempted to do after the honeymoon phase of their diverse community wore off. This past couple weeks, I spoke with with Pastor Stan Archie, who's the pastor of our, our Sister Church Christian Fellowship on 43rd and Truce, and he shared words that I thought were really helpful. Here's what he said. I want to read these for you. He says, God has not called the church to fix America's race problem. He has called the church to be the light so that they can see what happens when the body of Christ comes together. God never told the church to fix darkness. He asked us to be light. The question is not just do you contribute to racism, but do you contribute to light? Are we aggressively being the light? I understand we've done great things, but have we done enough? If we have, the light would be so bright that the world would see the church differently. Stan reiterated over and over again how when we started to partner together, Christ Community and Christian Fellowship Baptist Church, we didn't do it because of race, we did it because of our shared mission so that then when obstacles came up in our families, we would work through them because of the mission that we shared together. And we don't have time, we shouldn't, we can't, and we won't talk about everything we could talk about regarding race this morning. That's not, (laughs) we can't figure, figure it all out in 30 minutes, right? So I wanna direct you to a podcast that'll, that'll be coming out this week, I believe, that, that Pastor Stan and Pastor Tom, our lead senior pastor, are recording together to talk more through some of these issues, particularly as they relate to our churches and city. I also wanna point you to the blog that came out in our Saturday weekly email yesterday morning where our senior pastor, Nathan Miller, recommended a few resources to, uh, to look at if you're interested in learning more and exploring more on this topic. But in light of Stan's words, I want to take, ask us a few questions to help us process where we are when it comes to bo- God's building project of making one new family, one new body, and one new temple where he makes his home. So we're going to ask a few questions, and I'm going to suggest one next step in participating what God is building. Here's the first question that I want us to honestly and humbly wrestle with this morning. Are we building up what God has torn down? Are we building up what God has torn down. Are you, am I, are we, contributing to the rebuilding of barriers across racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic divides? Is there a chance that you have added bricks to a wall by avoiding people who are different from you or by harboring prejudice in your heart or by remaining a bystander as others have rebuilt these walls? Are we building up what God has torn down already. Here's a second question I want us to reflect on. Are we tearing down what God is building up? Are we tearing down what God is building up? Are you, am I, are we, participating in the deconstruction of the new family body and temple that God is reconstructing? Is there a chance that you have torn down Christians who are different from you by using wounding words or by keeping them at a distance or by refusing to budge on a preference or by getting defensive and lacking empathy when they share an authentic story of injustice? Are we tearing down the very thing that God is building up in our community? Here's the third question for us to consider. Are we building with God, or are we just watching? Are we building with God, or are we just watching? I've been a part of several mission trips uh, with with teenagers where we are going and doing manual labor in other cities or other countries around the world, and what you always see in those settings is that there are some people who are working really hard on the project and others who are just watching the work get done, right? Right? Like they're trying to look like they're contributing, but really they're just standing aside and letting others do the hard work. And the question this morning is, if Christ is building this temple to live in, which one are you? Are you the builder or the watcher? Which one am I? Which one are we as a church? Friends, it's not enough for us to not do bad. We have to do good. If Christ is passionate about reconciling groups of people together, we should be too. And it takes years of hard work. It takes years of deep relationships. It takes years of tough conversations and empathy and lament and sacrifice. Are you building up a diverse and unified family, body, temple? Or are you just watching? Just like we talked about last week, even though this kind of thing is something that can't happen if God isn't doing the work, he invites us to pick up a hammer and join him in the work. To participate in the radical countercultural community that he is building. Not from a place of shame or guilt, but a place where you are leaning into the vision that God has for his church in a positive and beautiful way. So the question then becomes how? What are some, some next steps for taking part in the reconstruction work God is doing to rebuild us. Let me suggest one way that we can do this. Again, there are many. This isn't something that's exhaustive at all. It has all kinds of implications to the way we live, love, and worship with one another. Here it is. Embrace the pain. Embrace the pain. As we discussed earlier, there is a cost that naturally comes with the territory of becoming family with those different from us. Not just different in in ethnic or racial categories, but different in other ways. There's a natural cost. If we do it right, there are going to be messy challenges and obstacles along the way. I grew up in a, a broken home, and what I've been processing through, one of the things I've been processing through with my counselor recently, is how I used to think that if a family had both parents, It would be so easy. That would just be a a great family. Or at least a lot easier. I used to to think that surely they would never fight. They would only know a little pain. But I couldn't have been more wrong. And all the families said, because family's never easy, right? Instead, a family where everyone stays together is a family where everyone has learned to embrace the pain, not run from it, not avoid it, not brush it under a rug. Healthy families don't complain from the outside, pointing out all of the flaws from afar. No, they talk through and embrace the pain from the inside of the community. They humbly say the thing that they need to say and stay at the table to work through it. In a similar way, healthy bodies don't harm themselves and they feel it when another part of their body is hurting. they take the time that they need to heal. That's what a healthy body does. And temples, when they're doing what they're supposed to do, are catalysts for the presence and mission of God, not ways to bolster the pride or agenda of human beings. Embrace the pain. Embrace the pain of remembering our history as hard as it can be to come to grips with what has happened in our church and our country. Embrace the pain of surrendering your preferences and rights For the sake of someone else embrace the pain of investing in cross-cultural relationships over the long haul embrace the pain of lamenting and weeping with those who have been victims of racism or wounded by the church lament and weep with them embrace the discomfort of sitting with someone who sees things differently than you refraining from a posture of defensiveness where superiority but sitting with them. Embrace the pain of the cross. Where Jesus embraced agony of his own. Where Jesus, who literally is superior to us, said, I don't gotta hold on to that because there's something more important and it's reconciling people together and people to God. Embrace the pain of the cross. Embrace the pain of coming together with people who are different from you to worship the one who makes us one. Embrace the pain of coming together even when you see the mess. Fight for it. Commit to it. Work at it. Because friends, if they are worthy of Jesus' blood, whoever they is to you, if they are worthy of Jesus' blood, they're worthy of your blood. The crazy, wild, unbelievable news of Ephesians 2 is that Paul isn't just rebuilding you, he's rebuilding us. He's building together one new family, one new body, one new temple, all rooted in Jesus. What God has built up, let no person tear down. And what God has torn down, let no person build back up again. Let's pray. God, we need an abundance of your mercy. We need an abundance of the power of your grace. We need the presence of your spirit in and among us. Or else this kind of vision can never happen. God, I pray that you would pour out a spirit of humility in our church. That you would pour out a spirit of sacrificial love of bearing one another's burdens, of listening well, of working together to overcome obstacles that we run into because the mission is greater, because you are with us. God, I need your help to embrace the pain, to wrestle honestly with the questions we asked this morning. God, I pray that we would not be driven on by shame, but by joy and hope a confident expectation and a future reality of your coming kingdom that we can lean into to give us energy to do the hard things today. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus, by the power of his spirit. Amen.